Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more and give them a call. The air website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. <clears throat> also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, and Larry Bell, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He was really one of the leaders of the space program back in the day. Uh, he's also the author of several books. His latest is just coming out soon. It'll be Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. <clears throat> we'll visit with Professor Bell as well. It is October the 20th, and on this day in 1803, the United States Senate approved a treaty with France providing for the purchase of the territory of Louisiana, which would double the size of the United States. At the end of the 18th century, the Spanish technically owned Louisiana, the huge region west of the Mississippi that had once been claimed by France and named for its monarch, King Louis XIV. Despite uh, Spanish ownership, to say nothing of, of course, Native Americans who inhabited the area for generations. American settlers in search of new land were already threatening to overrun the territory by the early 19th century. Recognizing it could not effectively maintain control of the region, Spain ceded Louisiana back to France in 1801. Sparking intense anxieties in Washington, D.C. under the leadership of Napoleon Bonaparte, France had become the most powerful nation in Europe, and unlike Spain, it had the military power and ambition to establish a strong colony in Louisiana and keep out the Americans. <clears throat> Realizing it was essential that the U.S. at least maintain control of the mouth of the all-important Mississippi River, early in the 1803, President uh, Thomas Jefferson sent James Monroe to join the French Foreign Minister Robert Livingston in France to see if Napoleon might be persuaded to sell New Orleans and West Florida to the United States. By that spring, the European situation had changed radically. Napoleon, who had previously envisioned creating a mighty new French empire in America, was now facing war with Great Britain. Rather than risk the strong possibility that Great Britain would quickly capture Louisiana and uh, leave France with nothing, Napoleon decided to raise the money for his war and simultaneously deny his enemy plum territory by offering to sell the entire territory to the United States for a mere $15 million. Flabbergasted, Monroe and Livingston decided that they couldn't pass up such a golden opportunity and they wisely overstepped the powers delegated to them and accepted Napoleon's offer. Despite his misgivings about the constitutionality of the purchase, the Constitution had no provision for the addition of territory by treaty. Jefferson finally agreed to send, uh, send the treaty to the United States for ratification to the Senate, noting privately the less we say about the constitutional difficulties, the better. <laughs> Despite his concerns, the treaty was ratified, and the Louisiana Purchase now ranks as the greatest achievement for Jefferson's presidency. He achieved a lot, and he was a great president, of course, the second president of our United States. $15 million, we purchased Alaska for $7.2 million. That was about $0.02 cents an acre. Makes me wonder, perhaps, this was at about $0.02 cents an acre as well. Amazing how we piece together the United States of America. Well, a record-breaking 100 ships were reported to be anchored at the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach on Tuesday as the cargo crisis continued despite the Biden administration claims on progress. The major backlog of container ships at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach is the worst it's ever been, with 100 ships waiting to enter and unload as of Tuesday. The number breaks last month's record of 97 vessels. To put it in context, there would be typically be about 17 ships at anchor in pre-pandemic times. The two Southern California ports account for 40% of all shipping containers entering in the United States. The backlog is only going to get worse, with another 45 ships expected to arrive at the ports by Thursday. The traffic jam has uh, seen the number of ships growing dramatically in recent weeks. The Biden administration cites economic growth and rising consumer demand saying that the cargo crisis is a good sign of progress despite the uh, supply chain disruptions 
hit his claws. <laughs> and at the same time, of course, he's demonstrating his economic ignorance. However, all these uh, reasons for the cargo crunch, including a shortage of dock workers, a lack of truckers, limited capacity for containers at the ports, and the fact that the port were not until recently operating until nights on nights and on weekends. On Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki claimed that there had been serious progress at the ports, noting that the progress uh, port of Los Angeles had already have the amount of cargo that is sitting on the docks for 13 days longer. Well, Jen, I don't think that's real progress because, again, 45 more ships showing up. <clears throat> and, in fact, now they're actually taking some of these empty containers, usually like uh, boxcars, and putting them in neighborhoods in Los Angeles because they have no place to store them. And uh, people are pretty upset about it. While Florida can play a key role in alleviating the nation's supply crisis, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis said Tuesday at Florida's port remains open, ready, and in some cases are offering incentives for businesses to move their cargo through Sunshine State ports. Speaking from Jacksonville, Florida's Jacksport, DeSantis laid out the situation the nation faces as America's witnessed major disruption in supply chains, citing in images of trucks uh, or ships docked off the coast of various cities and log jams which are directly impacting where we see in terms of our store shelves. Americans are seeing shortages of products, increased cost of items, and rising gas prices directly affecting computers. However, DeSantis said Florida can play a key role in alleviating the mounting crisis. We in Florida have the ability to help alleviate these log jams and help to ameliorate the problem with the supply chain, he said, explaining that Florida has been long committed to reliable, modern, accessible port facilities since he became governor in 2019. Since then, he said, Florida has allocated almost a billion dollars to over 70 Florida Sea projects, and these are approaches that make us really, really strong, he said. It's really, really is the model for the rest of the country. <clears throat> We're here. We have capacity, he said, adding that some ports, including Jacksport, are stepping up and offering incentive packages to businesses that want to move their cargo through these ports. This will uh, make a huge difference, and if you think about a place like Jacksport, you have close to 100 million consumers that live within one day's drive of Jacksport, he said. And I think companies are noticing, they're noticing that Florida could be the solution for some of these logistical problems. He continued noting that a European container shipping company recently announced that it would reroute vessels service to Jacksport, bringing estimated additional 1,000 containers to uh, Jacksonville per week. This is significant, he said. It has been many years since a European company came through Jacksonville. Port Everglades has also accommodated ships without backups, he noted, emphasizing that Florida's seaports are used to working across and around the clock. We see this as a great solution given our capacity for some of the problems you're seeing in other parts of the country, he said, reiterating that Florida is here. We want to make sure that Americans get goods that they need, particularly as we approach Christmas season, he continued. <clears throat> Hopefully what we're doing here, more and more folks coming to Florida ports, that will help solve some of the problems we're seeing. I'm proud of what we've been able to do, and I'm really proud of these seaports that we have here in the state of Florida. It really is some of the crown jewels that we have in the state, and we want to make sure that we're helping to address these because you start talking about supply chain inflation. That's not just something that's going to affect small segments. I mean, it hits very wide. It hits hard. Lord is here, we've got capacity, and we've also got incentive packages, so give us a call. And we're not slowing down, not even close, as Florida's largest container port. We want the industry to know that Florida ports like Jacksport are a solution to the nation's port congestion problem. Now, he didn't address the fact of truckers and whether there's truckers uh, available to take these cargo uh, vessels or containers from the ports, but uh, I assume they are uh, here on the East Coast. It's a great idea. Again, the governor's coming up with a solution that, uh, unfortunately, Buttigieg hasn't been able to identify. Well, after spending weeks on ships stuck off the coast of the United States, shipping containers are now reportedly being dumped in neighborhoods, as I mentioned, since the 24-7 operations of offloading. Many of the shipping containers that spent weeks on aboard ships are waiting to be unloaded are now being dumped in nearby neighborhoods. That's pretty sad. UCTI Trucking Company, located in Wilmington, California, only has the capacity to hold 65 containers, the report said. As a result of limited space, the trucking company has been lining the streets of nearby neighborhoods in order to 
front uh, in front of the homes of nearby residents. And of course, you can imagine they don't have a sense of humor about that. They really don't want those containers in front of their homes. But uh, this is the state of situation that we have right now. And Governor DeSantis, I think, has come up with a great recommendation. <clears throat> a sharp recommend, uh, reduction in Florida's COVID-19 cases appears to be of little interest to the mainstream media and the critics who previously vilified Governor DeSantis for his response to the pandemic. New infections per 100,000 Florida residents dropped to 12 during the past week, according to the New York Times. Case dropped by 48% in the state over the past 14 days. DeSantis was criticized by Democrats and the media for loosening pandemic restrictions ahead of other states. Other states with far more extreme pandemic restrictions are seeing COVID-19 continue to spread faster than in Florida. The rate of new cases in New York, for example, is 25 per 100,000 residents. Uh, the rate of infections per 100,000 in Washington State are 31, where, again, only at 12. The Santas allowed businesses to reopen with some limits in early May, just two months after the virus virtually shut down the entire country. Again, more good decisions on the part of Governor DeSantis, and look at the results. Less COVID-19 in Florida than uh, 47 of the uh, other states. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harton, the host of the Bob Harton Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, Great value and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabees Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. <clears throat> Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy, author, also constitutional scholar, and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Bob. Thank you. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual liberty, and 
limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Cato.org. Thank you, Bob. So uh, last week we started our conversation about inequality, and I would like to follow up with this question. Is it valid to compare the United States versus, say, some of the uh, Scandinavian company, countries? I think it's more valid to compare, for example, East versus West Germany, or North versus South Korea, or Communist China before the liberalization set in versus Taiwan or versus Hong Kong, uh, because the cultural differences are more or less neutralized when you make those comparisons. Mm-hmm. And it's also appropriate, I think, to consider indicators uh, of, of growth and innovation, not not just in dollars, but things like number of patents, number of PhDs, number of new business starts. And if you look at those statistics, you find out to a great extent it's the United States that's been the economic engine for the rest of the world, including uh, Scandinavia. <clears throat> and by the way, you know, a lot of Scandinavia is no longer socialist. Right. Uh, but about three years ago, Denmark... Uh, and Sweden, along with the U.S., were in the top 20 countries in Cato's Economic Freedom of the World uh, Index. Uh, Sweden, Sweden tried socialism for about three decades, and it failed. And so over the most recent uh, 30 years, uh, Sweden has reined in its entitlements, which, by the way, we haven't done, uh, has lowered taxes, has decreased spending, uh, they have school choice now. They, they've reduced all of their occupational licensing requirements, privatized a lot of uh, industries, and converted their Social Security into a 401k uh, type program, something that we tried to do under George W., but <clears throat> didn't work. Um, so, you know, Bernie Sanders says that billionaires should not exist. <laughs> he probably doesn't know that Sweden and Norway have more billionaires per capita per capita than the U.S. does. Sweden has almost twice as many. And the inheritance taxes there in both Sweden and Norway are are zero. So I think we come out pretty good by uh, comparison. Yeah, a lot of interesting myths there. That's thanks for clarifying that. So, what uh, we focus on income and wealth as of uh, when we talk about inequality. What about other non-monetary inequalities? Yeah, not all the inequalities are reflected in uh, monetary outcomes. You know, some rich people are are short and fat and unhealthy, or they have a low IQ, and some poor people are athletic and glamorous and uh, and intelligent. You know, like yourself, Bob. <laughs> yeah, are you, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to consider that uh, somebody is healthy and handsome and spends his days on the beach and earns minimum wage bussing tables at night and compare that person to somebody confined to a wheelchair who makes a million bucks a year in various entrepreneurial activities, ask yourself which one of them should be redistributing what to whom right? and which of the two guys is more likely to be creating jobs and which which of the two, on the other hand, is being greedy uh, in the worst sense of the word by demanding something to which he has no moral or, or legal claim. So there's there's a lot more than just money involved in this. And it's such an interesting point. So have government policies exacerbated uh, inequality? Most definitely. Um, you know, 70% of our agricultural budget funds uh, food services. 48 million people receiving food stamps. That's up from 17 million at uh, 2000. So that, that kind of dependency which is cultivated by the government outreach programs, frustrates upward mobility. And bear in mind that we spend about a trillion dollars a year on various federal welfare programs, Hmm. just federal, not counting state. If we took just a a third of that, a third of that trillion, $333 billion, and gave it directly to the poor, just hired a computer, put it in the basement, and had it grind out some checks, uh, there wouldn't be any more poor. Yeah. So imagine the waste that's taking place. Our, our public pension funds and our medical care uh, for the elderly they ag- aggravate inequality because young people and families in their child-rearing and tuition-paying years are subsidizing the elderly. Yeah. These households that are headed by people uh, above 75 years old have the highest median net worth of any age group, and yet they're on the government dole. Uh, and then there's 
of course, Federal Reserve policy, which has kept savings rates near zero, driving liquidity into the stock market, which, of course, benefits uh, about 10% of the people who hold about 80% of the stocks. And, of course, we have occupational licensing requirements that keep uh, <clears throat> people from taking that first step up the economic ladder. And the rich and the powerful are the only ones that are able to navigate uh, the complexities of all of our various <laughs> regulations. We have horrible state-run schools uh, that don't prepare people for the marketplace. We have land-use restrictions that raise the cost of housing. And we have protectionist tariffs and quotas, not to mention things like minimum wages, which pay people <clears throat> in part more than they're able to produce. So government policies have certainly exacerbated inequality. Those are such important points, Bob. Thank you for, for reviewing that. So district, do district, redistributive programs discourage private wealth accumulation? They certainly do. I mean, you have increases in Social Security, for example, that reduce private savings. I mean, if you know you're going to get your savings or you think you're going to get your savings out of Social Security, you're <clears throat> discouraged from putting your money into private accounts. So there's less incentive to save. And by the way, it, when you do it through Social Security, you can bequeath that account only to your spouse. It can't be left to your other heirs. Right. And along the way, you're paying a lot higher payroll taxes. So you have less available to save, even if you were inclined to save. So I think more, di more generally, these redistributive programs are often counterproductive and exacerbate uh, inequality. You know, Bob, I remember the debate on the center, I think, or the House floor of uh some folks standing up and saying, you know, we have to have these programs because some common Americans can't figure it out for themselves. <laughs> yeah, well, compare how uh, private accounts uh, have done in the stock market and 401k plans versus <clears throat> the kind of return that Social Security uh, recipients are receiving, which is a, actually a negative return. Yeah, so, so did the Trump economy bypass the poor and middle class? Well, job gains, you know, exploded. Uh, during uh, Trump's uh, last year, 2019, and it and it was a that was amazing for a 10-year expansion, the longest on record. Uh, the unemployment rate went to three and a half percent, which was a 50-year low. Uh, only about a fifth of the unemployed were out of work, compared to about 45 percent back in uh, back in 2011. Wages were up more than three percent from the prior year. <clears throat> and uh, production workers even more, um, and low-skilled workers' wages were rising at the fastest uh, rate in decades. And I think, very importantly, the labor participation rate, that is mm -hmm. the extent to which people want to participate in the workforce, was above 63% and above 67% for Hispanic Americans. And those were the best numbers in 10 years. Uh, the employment rate um, <clears throat> for prime age workers was above 80%, the highest since 2007, uh, compared to much worse numbers under the Obama administration. So, yes, the, the Trump uh, economy was a very good economy, and particularly good uh, for less affluent folks. So in spite of the tweets, you could say some of the policies that Trump had in place were superior to, the, to those that Obama had, and it looks like what, what, uh, Obama, what uh, uh, Biden wants to put in place as well. Most definitely. Again, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, I encourage you to visit the very robust website, cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, this has been a great conversation. I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for joining us. Great talking to you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz, that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Luke Provence, located in the store.
historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. That's gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Hey, before uh, we get into today's conversation, I wonder if you had any comments or want to make any comments about Colin Powell and his passing. I, I do. I'm going to, uh, as, I, as I mentioned to you off air, I'm going to try to um, stay away from personality attributes, but uh, there are comments I'd like to make. In terms of his death and its relationship to COVID-19, let, let me just start out with a few pieces of, uh, of good news. They're not dramatic, but uh, they're they're worth noting. I, I think that Glenn Youngkin, Youngkin has a, a significant chance of winning the uh, gubernatorial race in Virginia. That would be a significant win uh, to break up the, uh, the Democrat control of Virginia. It's not certainly a sure thing, but the Democrats seem to be in relatively a panic mode right now, which uh, to me indicates that their polling is showing that Youngkin is serving, is surging, and and perhaps can win that election, and that would be very good news. Yeah. Uh, there's also a, a movement in the Biden administration away from the $600 snooping uh, process or uh, attempt to uh, create uh, and movement to $10,000. Now, I always thought there was a $10,000 reporting requirement from the banks already, so I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I, I'm glad to see the movement away from that from that $600 snooping level, Bob. Yeah, a couple comments uh, with regard to McAuliffe. Apparently, he ended abruptly, uh, ended an interview yesterday with ABC7, I believe it was, in, in Washington, D.C., and got up, he huffed off, I mean, demonstrating, I think, real... Uh, concern about his situation in the election. I do think, as you're pointing out, Yunkin has a. I haven't brought it up in the show because I don't want to jinx it. Because I really would like to. <laughs> I'd like to see Yunkin win the election in. in uh, I, I didn't realize you had that kind of uh, spiritual power, Bob. Where your 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 view would affect the outcome, but. Glad to hear that. No, it's it's true. I mean, uh, it, it it would be great because so much of Northern Virginia is just packed with course uh washington dc employees with uh, bureaucrats and uh de democrats and uh it's states really gone off the deep end with regard to critical race theory you just name it i mean it's it's got some problems we need to get some sanity back and yonkin by the way is a good man i think he'd make a great governor by, by every measurement he is i mean the democrats <laughs> have been bringing in their their big guns i think stacy abrams came up from georgia to support 
uh, McAuliffe. There's a tremendous amount of money going in there. So uh, they understand that this uh, may be a bellwether uh, election, uh, not so much for the Republicans, but I think more so for the Democrats. If they lose in Virginia, I think they see the, the, the handwriting may be on the wall for 2022. So uh, that would be uh, certainly, for, from, from my point of view, a, a really uh, significant source of optimism. Um, before I get to, uh, uh, to General Powell, let me just talk about Jen Psaki for a moment, uh, where she indicated, Bob, that she welcomes the stiff competition from China, as they have apparently, by all uh, measurements, scientific measurements, have launched a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile. Now, for your listeners who aren't familiar with the hypersonic missile uh, circumstance, it is a suborbital missile that, that uh, uh, flies at five times the speed of sound. It can circle the planet. It can land uh, almost on a dime any place on this planet. Huh. It is a very serious addition to uh, a nuclear arsenal. Uh, for Jen Psaki to position it as if she's talking about two football teams you know, stiff competition from yeah. China. No, this uh, dramatically uh, elevates the, the threat that China offers. And, and Lindsey Graham, you know, ex-military man himself, uh, has also indicated the seriousness of the, uh, of the launch of a, of a hypersonic missile. So uh, this, this language being used by the administration for these kind of really very serious uh, events is uh, is uh, is depressing uh, i would also note the the lack of of intelligence agencies uh, our intelligence agencies uh, awareness of this of this event and once again our intelligence agencies seem to have missed something that that should be part of their uh, i would pr presume part of their process of investigation of the activities of China, Bob. Yeah, well, how can you possibly pay attention to so many things? For example, like uh, domestic terrorist parents trying to complain about the, <laughs> about the education of their kids. It's just, uh, I know my point being, uh, and I'm being facetious, my point being is we've got our focus on the wrong areas right now. We should, uh, the Chinese are just laser focused on their missions, and we seem to be uh, distracted by all kinds of non-issues that we're trying to make into issues. Well, I mean, and again, if you look at the Biden administration, rather than dealing with issues that exist front and uh, front and center, uh, such as the transportation and the supply chain issue, uh, they deal only with uh, pending legislations. They uh, that seems to be their entire focus. Uh, and I'm going to get to uh, Pete uh, Buttigieg in, in a minute. But let me let me uh, speak a little bit about Colin Powell. We had talked about that you and I off air and. Um, uh, Colin Powell, by, by every measurement, and I, I'm not diminishing the, the quality of the man, uh, I'm not going to talk about the fact that over the last four elections, uh, presidential elections, this Republican supported the Democrat. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the fact that once he left the Bush administration, he, he publicly apologized for his humiliating presentation at the United Nations in regards to weapons of mass destruction. I'm not going to mention those things. Uh, so... Let me just talk about what I am going to focus on here. Uh, I think we can see with, with Colin Powell's death, uh, the way the, the COVID numbers have been inflated. Uh, the question is, did he die from COVID or with COVID? Mm -hmm. uh, his death was far more likely caused by cancer. But this has been a, a, uh, a typical method used to inflate the, co the COVID mortality numbers, right. uh, where anyone who dies, regardless of actual cause, who has COVID at that time or has previously had COVID, Bob, they count that as a COVID death. And I think we're seeing that once again with, uh, with Colin Powell's death. Where we also can see with, uh, with Powell's death the absolute lack of, of prophylactic intervention when it comes to uh, COVID-19 patients. What's happening in this country is once there is the diagnosis of the person having COVID-19, they're sent home. And, and if the symptoms get really bad, only then are they sent to the hospital. But by then, it may be too late. Right. So instead of the intervening uh, application of prophylactics like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, Celebrex, Pepsid-AC, aspirin, there are a multiple number of, 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 of prophylactics that have all proven to be uh, successful to varying degrees. But right now, our medical community... In, and supporting the, the Fauci line uh, has absolutely put a block on the use of these prophylactics. And I, I think that's caused uh, 
it's hard to estimate the number, Bob, but certainly a huge number of deaths by that lack of, of intervention. I'm so happy you mentioned that. Uh, and I would comment the reason for that is that because there's no money in these uh, prophylactics. There's no money in stuff that's already been approved by the F- FDA and that uh, in many cases can be get uh, re- purchased over the counter if or by very inexpensive uh, prescriptions. So uh, it's, it's just really a shame right now. And the other thing, of course, is once you have uh, therapeutics in place, then uh, there, the uh, emergency uh, authorization of the vaccines becomes questionable because people can solve the problem without the vaccine. So to me... Yeah, there, there are multiple reasons for the resistance. I, I think you're right with the, the, the initial comment and, and the others also. But uh, the primary thing, I think, is the lack of financial uh, incentive or value derived Right. Uh, from these uh, from these uh, prophylactics, the the ivermectin has proven itself to be successful in in India time and time again. The uh, in Japan, the ivermectin use has been dramatic. Uh, I myself just happened to uh, incidentally, I use Celebrex for for joint pain, and I I also take a, a baby aspirin. Both aspirin and Celebrex have proven to be. Uh, purposeful uh, prophylactics for COVID-19. So, you know, who knows, Bob, those things may have in fact helped me if I, if I did come down with it, that uh, prevented the symptoms from developing. So um, I think those are things that are not just incidentals of a discussion. These things may in fact be causing the deaths of a huge number of people uh, because of whatever the reason that the medical community uh, and the and the government is suppressing these things almost with a fanaticism uh, that begs explanation as to why they're so uh, committed. You, you're Ivermectin sorry. is not a horse dewormer only. It's been used extensively uh, by by human beings. Uh, the fact that it's not uh, indicated by the FDA for COVID-19 uh, has very little meaning. There are many drugs that are that are used by the medical community for purposes other than the ones that are, are defined by the FDA, FDA. So there's nothing, there's no valid reason that can be offered why a, a harmless drug such as Ivermectin denied people uh, who have been diagnosed with with COVID-19. I, I could not agree more. Thank you for pointing that out. Uh, the other point that I'd make is that uh, <clears throat> uh, the CDC itself published statistics showing that they said uh, people die with uh, COVID-19 or die, but the only 6% of the listed deaths, they say, now this is the CDC saying this, only 6% of the deaths, this is about a year ago, the statistics, uh, are because of COVID-19. In other words, the cause of the death was COVID-19. 6%. So you take 6% of uh, 700,000 deaths, <laughs> then it becomes a very that's reasonable fair, that's 42,000 if my numbers are, are, are correct, right and, and correct you know a, a dramatic a dramatic difference and, and again i think that these numbers have been uh, super inflated i i think we're seeing and i sort of predicted this as many people did uh, months and months ago that this uh, covid 19 uh, lever uh, would would continue on and again i'm still predicting that it'll extend certainly through the 2022 elections where it will uh, affect the models of the vote, uh, how it's taken uh, in those elections. So I, I think it's uh, certainly there's been a problem. There's no doubt that COVID-19 is a is a serious uh, a flu type ailment, uh, somewhat marginally um, more significant than the seasonal flu, but not dramatically so. I right. think the the reaction has been very hyperbolic as compared to the reality of the disease. Uh, if I might, let me just get back to uh, Colin Powell for sure. a second in another area. I, I sort of alluded to it, and it's been a, a topic that always has bothered me. Uh, the Bush administration and Powell have been accused of lying about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, it's been generally suggested and accepted that they knew that Hussein didn't have weapons of mass destruction. That is not true. In other words, they uh, they believed, the administration believed he did have weapons of mass destruction. And there was every reason to believe he did. They He had used them previously. Uh, his generals themselves thought that Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. So what they lied about was the proof they offered to document what they believed to be true. Uh. But they were not lying about something that they knew was not true. They, they, they believed uh, fervently 
that Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. This, this was, to me, another example of Bush's inability to articulate a position, uh, either his inability to articulate or his, his, uh, his unwillingness to articulate these kind of positions in defense, uh, in defense of his administration's positions. And I think uh, that damaged all, certainly all the Republicans were damaged by, uh, by Bush's failure to defend the positions that were, were taken that were appropriate, Bob. So well said. Uh, that's an interesting point because, uh, you know, right now the, the narrative is that there were no weapons of mass destruction. There was no proof of it. And, uh, you know, we went to war for no cause. Uh, and uh, why do you believe that, uh, that there was real evidence? Why did you believe that we believed it? Because there was no reason not to believe it, and everyone in the world believed the Bob. All the major governments of the world, uh-huh. uh, Sada, one of uh, um, Hussein's generals, uh, Sada actually wrote a book indicating that the um, weapons of mass destruction had been airlifted out with the anticipation of an American invasion huh. uh, to Syria, and those weapons were, many of them, were eventually used by Assad in terms of some of the gas attacks that we uh, we documented as being launched by Assad. <clears throat> so there was no reason not to believe it. Everybody believed it. He had used them previously, and they were uh, available. That was widely documented. So there was absolutely no reason to believe that he did not have them. So interesting. So uh, Colin Powell, uh, I will say, I think it was a good, uh, as a good man, in other words, a good human being, he didn't necessarily... Uh, I didn't agree with everything that he uh, believed in, especially in the later part of his after he retired. But irrespective, I think he was uh, an honorable man. Let's move to uh, Pete Peter, uh, Buttigieg, <laughs> Buttigieg, our uh, Secretary of Transportation. Yeah, I mean, let, let's talk about the fact that he's been uh, absent from duty. Uh, he's apparently been on approximately a, a two-month-long or something resembling two months uh, a paternity leave because uh, he and his husband uh, have adopted twin uh, twin children, uh, and I think that's all commendable. And I think having a, a paternity leave is is acceptable. Except once a person accepts a responsibility, and in that responsibility, his actions and his uh, choices will affect the lives of ten or a hundred, or in Buttigieg's case, millions of people, that person has to put that responsibility ahead of family, other than significant emergency situations. This situation with his his adopted children uh, was not uh, in any way describable as an emergency situation. He should have been there. Uh, to handle this serious event that was taking place uh, in the transportation industry and with uh, with the supply chains. If, if we talk about paternity leave, Bob, I didn't meet my father till I was three years old. I was born in 42. My father came back in 45, and that was the first time I ever saw him. Uh, there is a significant commitment that people make uh, to issues outside of their family responsibilities that accept, as I say, Bob, for emergencies, those situations must dominate the decision-making. For, for Buttigieg just to walk away and basically walk away from his, uh, his transportation responsibilities uh, it, without even anybody essentially even knowing about it in the middle of perhaps the wor- worst supply chain transportation problem uh, that this nation and perhaps the world has ever seen. And by the way, I've just been uh, reading that this uh, supply chain issue in terms of uh, the uh, stacking up of, of the ships offshore has now extended to the East Coast, uh, and there are 80,000 containers waiting to be unloaded at Savannah. Savannah cannot handle it. Uh, Ron DeSantis is, is urging that more and more of these cargo ships come into Florida, where uh, Ron has invested a, a tremendous amount of time in, in, uh, in bolstering our, our port facilities and, and expanding the work hours. So, uh, once again, Florida seems to be the uh, avant-garde of, of how America should be uh, reacting in a in a modern world. Uh, but for Buttigieg, his transportation secretary, to yeah. uh, have nothing to offer in this situation, of course, that was predictable. As the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, fixing potholes was pretty much the extent, extent 
uh, of his transportation involvement. Yeah, so well said. Did uh, you know? Did not rise to the occasion. Made a poor decision. Should have definitely said, you know what? Uh, this maternity leave can wait. I've got things I've got to handle for the country. He's not the only one that hasn't shown up though during a critical time. Of course, we're talking about our vice president with regard to immigration and so many others that seem to be focused on the agenda of the. Biden administration, which is to, in my opinion, to reverse the, the quality of our uh, free markets and uh, to implement socialism here in the United States, communism actually. Uh, instead of that, it's to, instead of uh, trying to take care of the problems here in the nation. Well, I, I think we're, we're beginning to identify that every great nation, as, as is the United States, is going to be uh, hit constantly with problems. And sometimes we don't even uh, have an awareness of these problems because they're handled well uh, in the by the government and in, in the executive branch or wherever they have to be handled in the yep. in the federal bureaucracy. And they they come and they're resolved and we, we move on. What we're seeing in the uh, in the Biden administration, I think certainly we probably have a, a higher load of problems than uh, than is normal, but not dramatically so. But I think what we're seeing is what happens when. These problems are not attended to, uh, and I think uh, these things are going to get worse. Uh, and they're predicting, for example, the uh, the supply chain issue to extend at least to 2023. Now, as to whether or not that deepens into other areas of, of concern right now, the focus seems to be, I think, inappropriately on, on the availability of Christmas goods. But I can see it extending into some of the more uh, um, important and critical areas of uh, pharmaceutical shipments, uh, perhaps as this thing expands, some of the overseas shipment of, of foodstuffs that come into America and from America overseas also. Uh, so I think we're looking at a problem that has dramatic implication if it expands beyond where it is now. And every there's every indication to believe it will expand beyond its current circumstance, Bob. Well, you know, Andy, the fact of the matter is that things that are made in America don't have to be shipped to America. That, to me, is the best solution, is to uh, make our our country the most attractive country in the world for businesses to establish themselves to make goods and services. Well, I mean, it's it, it's been that um, I, I, whether or not we are still the uh, the free market system that uh, created the the world's most significant entrepreneurs, uh, uh, whether that's still in place, that waits to be seen uh, with the uh, projected increase in corporate taxes. And uh, uh. we know the implication when those taxes were high in the in the past and uh, it drives a business offshore. Uh, so I, I think that right now we're looking at problems that are that are not only uh, in many cases being ignored, but are actually being increased in their depth by the actions taken by the by the by the Biden administration, and of course they're leveraging much of this with the with COVID nineteen and the uh, the hyperbolic reaction. Also, the uh, the carb decarbonization issue certainly is is front and center. Both of these, uh, depending on your point of view, have some degree of significance, but neither has the high degree of significance that is being offered. Uh, by this administration and by our government in general. Yeah. Uh, the Secretary of, the, of Transportation, uh, Transportation of Energy recently uh, said, I think yesterday, that we have no moral authority to, uh, to comment on China's energy policies because ours are so uh, backward uh, <laughs> in their uh, response to decarbonization. Uh, doesn't even seem, she doesn't seem to even recognize that only one nation in the world since the uh, Tokyo Protocols uh, has actually decreased their carbon output, and that's the United States of America. So yeah. to say we have no moral authority to comment on China's uh, excessive use of, of coal-driven energy plants is, is absolutely absurd, Bob. Andy, just always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Andrew Jopp, again, author of Josephus of Oz. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, Bob. Thank you so much, Andy. All right, coming up, Professor Larry Bell. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A perfect product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Tickets are on sale now to some great productions. You can visit the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture. He's also an author. He's written now coming 11 books. His latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional and a new book coming out, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. Professor Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Bob, good morning. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure, Professor. Tell us about your new book, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. Yeah, it's something that... Uh Buzz and I have been working on it for quite a while. I think it's been at least four years in the making, and uh, it's. Uh, I think it's an interesting book. First of all, it's a it's a history of of kind of global space development of how you know, from the earliest times uh, the first visionaries, the fellow named uh, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, and in in Russia, a little high school teacher that. Uh, a little village that really conceived of so many of the things that have materialized today is quite amazing. And but it's a, it's it's largely a history of of space and and uh, and from a global perspective of things that happened, including the space race with Russia and the birth of commercialization and so on. And uh, the is co-authored with Buzz and and Buzz. It deals with, uh, I think, generally in three areas. One is the early history of space and how everything happened and who these visionaries and brave people were and then the, well, the more contemporary times of, of um, you know, the space race and beyond into things that have led to you know, some of the commercial things that are getting a lot of interest today. And then the third part's really about the future and for that, I really rely totally on Buzz, and, and I call that section Buzzwords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's really his quotes, I think, quite you know, very forward-looking. Buzz, Buzz is a guy, and even very dear friends for for decades, is always about the future. He, he never, uh, he rarely talks about the moon, other than some anecdote with, uh, you know, his conversation with Neil and, or whatever uh, mm-hmm. during the you know, Apollo and somebody always think about the future. It's always about going to Mars and 
the future. And he has a a concept that I that I give a lot of credence to. It. It's very very uh, progressive thought of cycling orbits where uh, where we it's, it's kind of like expressways in the sky that use orbital mechanics to uh, reduce you know the amount of uh, um, energy and rocket fuel and so on that are needed and so on. So very visionary guy. Mm. So interesting. So I think it, it's I think it's quite a quite a fascinating book. I've really enjoyed writing it with Buzz and uh and it's given me, you know, given us a lot of quality time together as well. Outstanding. When will the book be coming out? I think it's gonna be coming out we're trying to get out, my publisher is trying to get it out before the holidays and hopefully that'll be sometime next month. It's, the manuscript is written is in a it's in a production process right now, mm-hmm. and um, so hopefully, hopefully that will happen yeah. very, uh, very soon. If not weeks, uh, well, I think certainly be weeks. But uh, uh, I'd like to see it come out uh, close to the middle of next month as possible. Is it possible to uh, buy the book, uh, pre-order the book before it's, uh, before it's published? I think it will be. We haven't announced that yet because we. We need to have a, a publishing date first. Yeah. And uh, I think we're moving rapidly towards that. I'll mention one other thing that I, I think was, you know, behind the idea of the book, and it's, it's that space, the space development kind of mirrors our worst fears and greatest aspirations. And it kind of grew out of, of you know, the V2 rockets in, in Europe, you know, some very scary times where, where, where things rain down on us from from above and uh, very terrifying. We still have that aspect of things with, you know, China just launching a rocket that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, has, uh, you know, a stealth capability to deliver a nuclear warhead anywhere in the world. So we have that specter of space being really, really scary. Uh, we think of Iran moving towards nuclearization and so on. On the other hand, there's that. There's the other aspect of it. Let's cooperate. Let's build an international space station. Let's go to Mars together. Let's be a, you know, let's let's be a, a multi-planet uh, species, etc. And so it holds out the great hope that it's going to deliver the technology and the new dreamers and the new pioneers for the future. And I think it's this dichotomy where. Where, where the space program is, is, is both are, you know, and I think when we look at Sputnik and Gagarin, it was, you know, and the Russians, it was really symbolized that the Russians were ahead of us technologically and by extension militarily. And and Khrushchev and others really played that a lot with the United Nations and so on. So, so it's, uh, space is quite a mirror of who we are as well as, as, an influence on, on who we are and who we will be and who our children will be and, mm-hmm. and what they will study, whether it'll be uh, critical race theory or whether it'll be mathematics and physics and business and, and things that really create a new future for us. I must say, I'm, I'm just very excited about reading the book myself. I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that Elon Musk and others are uh, you know, you know, creating a, a, a private effort in order to, uh, to go into outer space. Just very interesting indeed. Just begs a lot of those questions, and I look forward to reading Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier by Larry Bell. Professor, I always appreciate how had so many uh, things we want to talk about today. We don't have time, but I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I had fun. Uh, tomorrow, we've got some great guests lined up, including Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government and the former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett. Always appreciate his commentary on what's happening here locally and nationally as well. I appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast, or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks 
so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.